0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2014, volume 52, number 12. My name's David Fizakley and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm the Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month, Valuing Exercise Therapy, discusses the cost-effectiveness of pulmonary rehabilitation. And what's the issue that we highlight, James? The main one is the work done
1: by the London Respiratory Group, which have highlighted the cost-effectiveness of certain interventions for COPD and have demonstrated very clearly that pulmonary rehabilitation is one of the most cost effective things we can do and it's actually far more cost effective than some of the medical interventions, particularly triple therapy. That's to say using both a short-acting beta agonist, a long-acting beta agonist, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist and an inhaled corticosteroid in a patient with
0: COPD. But Presumably prescribing drugs is relatively straightforward, fairly simple to do and it gets something to the patient.
1: Well, that's the issue, isn't it? We have an extremely slick system now for providing drugs to patients. And what we highlight in the editorial is we don't have a slick system for providing rehabilitation and exercise to the same same
0: people. Yet we know pulmonary rehab works. We know it's cost-effective. What about adherence to it?
1: Well, and this is the issue as well, although, of course, we know that the concordance with medication isn't great concordance when you look at lifestyle interventions particularly surrounding exercise is always very poor to be honest and, and therefore one of the issues is is not just getting this cost-effective intervention into people's lives but then keeping it there
0: but again that's no different from trying to keep them going with any intervention oh precisely okay thank you very much our first main article looks at a drug for the management of erythema associated with rosacea, brimonidine. We review the use of brimonidine gel in the treatment of erythema associated with rosacea. So what do we know about brimonidine? What is it?
1: Well, brimonidine has been around. It's not a new drug. It's an alpha-2 adrenergic uh, receptor agonist and it's been used in the past in the management of glaucoma, open angle glaucoma so it's a, it's a drug that has been used and has been
0: established for some time. But in this condition it's obviously new targeted just at one symptom That's right, this is just
1: a vasoconstrictor so all it does is cause vasoconstriction on the face and as a consequence reduce the erythema and redness that people some people suffer particularly badly with rosacea
0: So presumably there are other interventions that you can use for
1: rosacea? Indeed. I mean, there's a whole gamut of of both topical and uh, oral preparations you can use for uh, rosacea, which are well-established and licensed for its use. And this is a, a new idea, which just to say, rather than treating rosacea, it just deals with the symptom of erythema. So you stop the treatment
0: you carry on with the symptoms.
1: Precisely it has I mean the the way you 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 apply this drug topically and uh, it starts to work within about 30 minutes most effective around three hours after the preparation has been applied and then most people found that six hours and on the effectiveness of it would wear off
0: quietly and and
1: disappear over that
0: time. So the evidence of effectiveness obviously it does something in those uh, during those periods you talked about work for everybody?
1: Um one of the problems, of course, with studies like this is that there isn't any internationally or even nationally used scoring system to measure erythema in people. So the researchers had to sort of basically produce their own five point scoring system. And what they did was they said, let's take people with moderates to severe erythema. We'll call it a score of three out of five or more and we'll say that you've had a um, success treatment if that those points drop by two and in the studies uh, concerned about third of people using this drug had a reduction of two or more in their scoring system
0: and how did that compare to those who used the vehicle gel
1: yeah so those who had this placebo they had about a 10 percent so there was about a 20 percent absolute risk reduction which for those who like their NNTs numbers needed to treat it's about five.
0: So some evidence on a outcome score that was devised by the, and validated by the investigators. What about harms? Any... Well, oddly enough, this
1: did sometimes cause burning or erythema in some people. So about less than 5% of people tended to get some sort of topical reaction to the treatment. And from a practical point of view, it comes as a tube? Yeah, it's a tube of gel, a month's worth, costs about £30, £35, um... And from the studies we've got, and there there aren't that many, but from the sort of longer-term studies, it doesn't seem to have any uh, rebound phenomenon in the sense that uh, patients using it for a year weren't finding it any less effective at the end of that year than they were at the beginning.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And our final main article is on fecal microbiota transplantation. You're going to have to explain this one.
1: Yes, this is a remarkable uh, novel treatment where you take the faecal material from a healthy person, uh, you filter it and uh, give it to someone who's got Clostridium difficile and is effective at treating that condition. And we've only got case reports and short research studies at the moment, but they seem to be very interesting and promising results. And how do you administer it? Well, uh, you don't administer it uh, orally without a nasogastric tube, in fact a nasoduodenal tube very often, or it can be given rectally in the form of a
0: retention enema. Okay, so a variety of ways of, of getting... And anything about selection choice of donors? Well, this is the issue. I mean, the thing about...
1: This has all the ethical issues of blood transfusions and some, because clearly patients can harbour pathogens in their gut. They can also be non-symptomatic carriers. So these patients all need screening. And also there perhaps are issues around other things you wouldn't think about. So for example, it might be that if you'd eaten something which the donor is absolutely fine with, but the recipient is allergic to, you could obviously create an allergic reaction in the recipient. So there are all kinds of issues associated with this which are just being teased out at the moment.
0: So there is some evidence, uh, as in many case series, case reports, it has got a, an approval from NICE as, as part of one of their assessments that it can be used. Is there a suggestion it could be used for other conditions? The other disease that people have been looking at here are the
1: inflammatory bowel diseases, and there have been some trials that have been done which show that perhaps a much more intensive treatment option is required, but this can lead to complete resolution of someone's symptoms and even a complete cessation of all
0: their medication. And just a, a point of interest from the trials have they used any sham procedures or has it just been this intervention and compared with something else?
1: Well, this is, you know, this is a lighthouse we've been around. Um, and it is a worry in the sense that we really do only have very small studies, often with less than 10 people involved in the studies. And uh, in none of the case reports or research that we could find, had there been any real sham procedures. So there was complete unblinding of the treatment options to the patient concerned. And I think, you know, we, we've we seen this with other research where the initial case report management has been really very Mm. reassuring and and exciting and then actually when you do a a really good randomised placebo blinded trial you find actually the results are not quite as good as you were hoping.
0: So encouraging but we do need further research? Very encouraging.
1: I mean, obviously, Clostridium difficile is a nasty condition, which although it has reduced a little bit in its incidence over the last few years, is still a major cause of morbidity and mortality, particularly amongst the elderly patients. And this is particularly the area, I think, where we need to do the research, because obviously it's the very elderly who are most frail and immunocompromised. And the worry is that these may be the patients that are most at risk from this sort of transplantation of potentially, you know, bacterial and therefore potentially pathogenic material.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And just a couple of items from Select this month to finish with, both antibiotic-related. First one was a study of antibiotic prescribing in general practice in the UK, which looked at prescribing data, looked at reasons for the prescription and tried to link them, highlighted some
1: interesting trends. This is a thing very close to my heart. All my general practice life, I've been very keen to see a reduction in the use of antibiotics in in primary care. And I have to say, this is disappointing. This is um, looking at work done, uh, as you say, in in a wide range of GP practices. And what they found was that there's still the use of antibiotics in certain conditions like otitis media, sore throats, it's still remarkably high with sort of 82% of patients with otitis media being given antibiotics and uh, figures around 37% for uh, sore throats, which I think is just such a shame. We have such an important uh, moral duty to try and keep these antibiotics as effective as long as we can. So I think this is a wake-up call for all of us in general practice to really look at our prescribing and see if we
0: can't make a better hash of it. And the strength of it was clearly that it was linking... Prescriptions to diagnosis, which, well, rather than just looking at trends.
1: A- absolutely, this was this was um, using vision practice software. They were able to go in and actually combine the two and get some good, robust figures.
0: And interestingly, despite guidance being issued from various national bodies, it didn't appear to have had a huge influence. So, just issuing guidance on its own isn't making enough of a difference when it comes to prescribing.
1: No, I think I think anyone involved in this area understands that it's very much more complex than just. You know, doing some sort of scoring system with disease uh, symptoms and signs and then making a decision. It's not just decision making, it's also how you uh, discuss these issues with patients and how you get their buy in to recognize that they don't need antibiotics this time.
0: So, more work to be done. And the second one is nitrofurantoin, a change in advice from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency on how it should be used in patients with renal impairment, last year they highlighted its contraindications, particularly in people whose creatinine clearance was below 60 mils per minute. That was the contraindication in place at, at that time. So the new guidance is suggesting what that they they've
1: sort of backed off a little bit really and said that actually we think uh, nitrofurantoin is still absolutely fine and safe and effective in patients whose uh, renal function has dropped to 45 mils per minute. So um it's a relaxing if you like of those those initial rules and I think that is very important. UTIs are a difficult condition to treat increasingly so and we're aware that if we use broad-spectrum antibiotics, particularly in the elderly, you are more at risk of developing Clostridium difficile and all those complications. So to be able to open up the use of nitrofurantoin to a wider uh, population uh, hopefully would be a good thing.
0: Because we thought at the time that they highlighted the old or the previous contraindication, there would be a large group of people for whom the drug would not be available. So this obviously brings those people back into... can be The drug can be used for them. And I noticed even... They're saying that a short course, and I think they talk about three days, can be used in the range of 30 to 44 mils per minute, so even more uh, accessible for, for certain groups of people.
1: Indeed, and I think uh, one of the things we've discussed in, in the editorial group is uh, why. Where, where's this come from? You know, Is there some information that um, we, we'd quite like to look at about what has allowed them to make this decision?
0: They cite two studies, um, as showing that there is really no basis for the previous contraindication and really questioning where that had come from in the first place so that th- But that data in itself was 2013 um, And looking back over the kind of lifespan of nitrofurento And so what prompted this change mm. is, is an interesting question indeed And indeed whether other drugs have got contraindications for which there is no evidence for them. So if you start trawling back through lots of drugs, could you find lots of contraindications that no longer hold? Well, I mean, there's lots of talk, isn't there, about um, doing exactly that, looking back
1: and finding perhaps we have a wealth of uh, drugs that have become rather Cinderella's and are not being used but might have important effectiveness in other diseases and other indications.
0: Uh, Certainly a question for future issues, I suspect. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to read these or any of our articles, please visit dtb.bmj.com. And also this month, if you are interested in helping with DTB content, either by becoming a commentator or even helping draft some of our material, please email us with your details at dtb at bmj.com.